This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. Welcome to episode 43 of the Mad, Bad and Downright Strange Showcase, continuing our trek for the 1001 film introduction to Cool Some Obscure Cinema, which is the Mad, Bad and Downright Strange list. As I always, I'm your host, Edward Jones, from the Dexter DVD Hell and Channel Supro, and tonight it's a controversial sleaze double bill, which unsurprisingly comes with a warning not to listen if easily offended. So instead of writing angry emails, why not instead check out one of the episodes from the archive instead? <laughs> but... Before we get into our selections for this evening, I'd like to express my thanks to Stacey Ponder, who, after 11 years at this time of recording, has called time on her legendary horror blog, Final Girl, um, which in turn will be responsible for turning my own blog from being a misguided attempt at being a bad movie blog into its current love letters called Foreign Obscure Cinema that it became after writing about Friday the 13th as part of a Final Girl, horror, Final Girl film club. And it was at this point in... I realized exactly what I wanted to be writing about all along and for this I really cannot thank her enough and at the same time wishing her all the best for whatever comes next. But on the slate tonight we have uh, a double bill we'll be looking at Bruno Mattai's SS Girls in which he essentially rips off Tinto Brass's Salon Kitty. We'll also be looking at the Swedish rape revenge thriller, thriller a Cruel Picture also known as They Call a One-Eye, a popular favorite of Quentin Tarantino most notably from its inclusion at the end of Death Proof, as well as inspiring the inspiration for Ellie Driver in Kill Bill. But joining me for another round of coffee and trash flex is the host of not only the debatable podcast, but also the Wire Retrospective or the Pieces Matter. It gives me great pleasure to welcome back to the show Greg Shavadashi. <laughs> close, Sadashani. Oh, you got very close this time. So I think I've, the more times you come on, Greg, we'll eventually get it down. Eventually. So. If, uh, is it possible for me to be on 26 times, though? It's going to take that long. <laughs> I to... don't know. We've, we've still got... Uh, let me let's see. work Let's work on syllables. Let's work just one syllable each show. Yeah. How about we find your new pen name? <laughs> that would be good. <laughs> see? Would, that would be good. Just become like Cher and just go by Greg. I just said Mr. Greggles, you know? Go with my uh, Twitter handle. That's fine. That'll work. No, I'd... As I said, I mean, we've got, we still got, well, what, 40, well, 43 episodes into this 500-plus run that we're going to take to kill the list. And, and this isn't obviously taking into account the various distractions that we obviously encounter along the way as, obviously, things such as drafts and wanting to look at right. particular themes obviously pop up and sort of expand the, expand the project further, but... It's... Have you thought of an endgame? Have you thought, hey, when this is over, when you get all 500 done what's your what's your end game what are you going to extend it another thousand there's always there's always more movies to watch as sure. a, as a, as a thing i mentioned to you before when you first came on every time someone comes on the show we always seem to add more titles exactly. onto the second list that we're building so exactly. i i don't know whether it's this like fear of being like alexander at the end of the world and realizing there's nothing <laughs> left to conquer that i have to constantly have the next project to go on to but uh 
certainly it's it's still interesting it's still fun um and it's obviously it's... great that you know i get to hang out with people like yourself and discuss Thanks, these films i can only obviously apologize for tonight's selection because i feel that they're diverse films to say the least they are. And also, I, I, I want to preface it all by saying uh, thank you so much for having the, the patience. We've rescheduled this like probably half a dozen times at this point. And, uh, you know, just, just personal stuff on my side. And, and you've been uh, so gracious with, with um, not only rescheduling, but also uh, not um, um, uh, nagging me about your own episode of the debatable podcast that you were on that I still haven't uh, published yet. But it will be coming up very soon. Well, it was, it was just an absolute pleasure just to be on. I mean, that's a, a never-mounting client. I mean, you obviously, when you start podcasting or blogging, you have these goals that you set out for yourself. And right. obviously, the debate podcast and fan the show anyway. So there's obviously the fact to come on and, and bring the tone down and do an episode for you. It's an absolute <laughs> pleasure, so... Uh, it was a great, it was a great uh, conversation. I think we tapped into kind of our, our love of, of cult cinema and and basically the, the things that you're that you're upholding. You know, just not just with the with the blog, but with the podcast. Kind of these, you know, digging deep into uh, your passions and your obsessions. I love that stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, with the debatable podcast, this is a show based around people's loves and interests. Mm-hmm. Um, do you ever? So, where do you obviously find? the guests for this this show i mean you obviously have such a wide range of guests and topics that you cover i mean one right. of the things i always love is the fact that no topic is seemingly taboo be it pornography or right. cult cinema you provide this open forum for people to obviously come on and discuss without sort of judgment or right, uh, right. question of what what they have you just basically provide this platform to people come express opinion and uh absolutely you probe and probe them further to obviously uh really sort of tap into the heart of the issue and i think as we mentioned before, when you were on, on previously, um, yeah. this is the beauty of podcasting. It gives us this freedom to obviously go in depth into subjects. Absolutely. So, when you start talking to people, I mean, like uh, obviously, you, you. I think that there's always that part of of, of a person, um, a, a show host, who wants to talk about something that they're really like into. It's something that they're kind of uh, obsessing about themselves. So, you know, it's such a selfish thing. You know, one interest to another. I'm like, you know, what? What am I feeling? You know, I'm. I just played this video game and you know I really want to talk about this video game with someone who played it too or has a certain perspective on it and then you apply that to each little piece of media you know I, I just uh, watched uh, for instance let me go through it so like if, if I just watched all the Lethal Weapon movies which I did um, just rewatch them I'm like you know maybe I want to do a, a podcast about you know late uh, 80s early 90s action or something like that so it really starts very simply like that and I think that, that 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 that's where your your podcast selfishness kind of leads to selflessness because then you start finding people and you're thinking okay well you know this this might turn into a good uh, um, uh, listenable conversation and then you know your audience gets gets the reward I love that part of it and I mean obviously how do you go about finding your guests and let alone getting them on I mean is this just a case of you find inspiration in someone you just assume on Twitter, or was it? 
It's so yeah. It so depends on that. Yeah, I feel like uh, you know early on, obviously, you know, I, I had no uh, cachet, no pull. So a lot of it was my my friends and then people that I knew on Twitter that were also writers or bloggers or whatever. And then once it got to something where I, I had a few, maybe maybe even like ten or or a dozen episodes under my belt, I started getting a little more uh, uh, ball, ballsy with uh, the people that I was. Uh, going after especially considering one of my passions is like uh writers writing and and screenwriting so i went after critics and i went after screenwriters to get on the show and 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 uh, novel writers and nonfiction writers to get on the show because i'm interested in that in that process but yeah it would always be through like twitter a uh, few of them have been through just more modern cold calling in quotes, more like, you know, uh, a cold email um, uh, to like agency or, or um, you know, their representation. But then also, you know, pairing both of these podcasts that I do with uh, Action A Go Go, Derek at Action A Go Go and uh, Troy have been great at also getting um, uh, people, uh, putting me in contact with, with people that have been on there. The Uwe Boll episode that comes through them. Um, Billy Corbin was one that came through me just knowing Billy on um, on Twitter and so on and so forth. You know, you never know where you're going to make a connection and then that leads to something. Yeah. So, I mean, is there any sort of guests that, that are out there, that sort of like your white whale, so to speak, that mm-hmm. you wanted to get on, but for one reason or another, it's yet to happen? Or I would say early on, and this might still be true, hold me to this. I told Fernando Madrigal, who I co-host All the Pieces Matter with, I told him if I could get Hart Bachner, who was Ellis and Die Hard, and he is the director of PCU as well as High School High, if I could get Hart Bachner on the podcast, uh, I might call it quits. Debatable might be... It might have fulfilled all my my interests. No, Hart Bachner's fantastic. He's like one of these these actors and kind of like, you know, Ellis to me is such a, a smarmy and, and wonderful addition to cinema in general, not just American cinema, not just action cinema. I just love that character, that fucking yuppie from, uh, from Die Hard so much. And uh, I was such a big fan of PCU and it's so funny that that this person that I've kind of obsessed over in his character you know being a character actor went on to to be a director and I you know you hear those stories all the time you know be it Mel Gibson you know high profile actors turned directors but I I would love to know kind of his uh his kind of journey with that and you know I've I've tried to do the representation thing I've tried to get him on and uh for me he's the elusive white whale I think it's yourself and obviously Outlaw Van of uh, over the Outlaw Van, who's also shows his obsession with Ellis because he's got the, his sticker uh, "Don't be Ellis." I love obviously. it. <laughs> I love it. I think I used to have that on my on my cubicle wall. I used to have that that That's printed great. out, and next to it, um, the customer is also wrong as well as <laughs> usually a fucking moron. Nice. Uh, these were like my two little <laughs> mantras I had, but because we're obviously in cubicle hell, no one cares what you're doing as long as you're answering the phone it seems so oh, of course does it sort of worry you the fact that uh, debatable could obviously come to the end one day or do you think there's always going to be um, a last to find someone new there's always going to be a new topic that you want to cover it's true it has a formula that could go on forever i, I feel like this the past 
six months, even a year where I've been going through a lot of tumultuous shit in my own life um, has kind of brought it close to to feeling like maybe I should put it on hiatus and, and focus on other things. In fact, I, I did put it on hiatus. I mean, we've only done <clears throat> maybe a few episodes of Debatable this year. It's already June. And we haven't done one All the Pieces Matter this year. And it's really because of, of scheduling conflicts, especially with having a co-host. I, I, I'm not going to put any of the blame on, on Fernando. It's been 100% on my side. But it's it's very difficult. I can't, I've, I've come very close consistently to thinking that maybe I should just guest full time. I should just become your co-host full time <laughs> is what I thought. I said, fuck it. I'm going to do this. No, I, I just don't know. I, I think that uh, since things are kind of lightening up and I'm getting past, I think the worst part of the storm, I'm getting back into wanting to, uh, to publish what I have in the bank. And I'm already, you know, I've already put, um, uh, new, uh, new shows on the calendar. So I'm getting back into it slowly. I'm going to try to go back to the bi-weekly thing, but yeah, you know, it does have a formula that could go on forever. And I, I want to stick with it as long as it's, it feels fresh and it feels like I'm doing something new. I never want it to feel like it's stale or I'm going through the, the, um, the beats, just doing the yeah. same thing over and over again. Yeah. So it's really, well, it's, it's still fun for yourself. Yes, really. yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, one of the things, obviously, tonight we are obviously doing this controversial sleaze double, which in turn is great because it opens up the forum really for our discussion to basically discuss whatever the hell we want. Yeah. Because, you know, we have pre-warned, <laughs> and if you obviously ignore that warning, I can only say it's going to get worse from this point onwards, <laughs> more than likely. Something that's, I think we we discussed either on the show last time or certainly in private, and that's when you're trying to get people involved in the adult film industry. It's always been kind of very difficult, and it's very surprising as well, especially in these times where pornography is considered so mainstream, um, so right. accepted by society, obviously, compared to, like, the early 90s and stuff where, um, where the internet was sort of getting into its stride and it was still seen as this very taboo thing even though it's essentially what everyone was using the internet for, that mm. and to bitch about movies. Yep. So I know for myself there's been a number of adult performers, uh, people like uh, uh, the camp girl Veronica Chaos, mm -hmm. just a unique version of ventriloquism through uh, cam girl and she was featured in the documentary Cam Girls mm -hmm. uh, which is far superior to the much uh, lauded and praised uh, Hot Girls Wanted, which was just well, yeah. awful. I uh, finally got around to watching Cam Girls, by the way. I really did you like it. it? Yeah, yeah, I enjoyed it. Um, I think Sean Dunn is... He's just frequently put out interesting work. I mean, he's, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's that, or if you're looking at some of his shorter films, such as American Juggalo, where he goes to uh, The mm -hmm. Gathering of the Juggalo, there's just always there's something very fascinating about, about his style, the fact that he always prefers to play the observer rather than take right. a more hands-on role, try to get involved, uh, like you may see in like a film like Fetishes. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, what from your own personal experience, obviously, because I know you have interviewed people within the adult industry, uh, right. like obviously in pornography, what would you say is the, obvious, the, the reason why these performances, despite obviously the mainstream, uh, the mainstream acceptance, so to speak, of their industry why do you think there's still this reluctance for them to discuss their work i don't know um you you mean from uh, you mean the performers themselves or do you mean the the cultural well uh, like i mean around it? It, it, both really i mean it's very difficult right. to find people who want to openly discuss 
pornography for fear of being branded a pervert. I mean, there's obviously people True. that I've had on, such as like Robin Bougie, who runs Cinema Serial, who's very open um, right. in his sort of personal tastes and, and things like that. And it's great for him to obviously be able to have that freedom. While for the rest of us, you kind of obviously have that stigma of, oh, I'm discussing yeah. pornography, I'm talking with uh, adult performers, then I'm somehow going to be branded as a pervert uh, right. in a way. But the performers themselves, there's always seems to be this reluctance to come on a, a yeah. sort of setting themselves up to be be shamed for what they're doing. And it's really True. just a fascination with the industry. I think so. I think that there's part of that that um, they they don't want to be targeted or they don't want to discuss too much about the industry. I mean, I can understand the, the reluctance to talk about the industry as a whole because you are, um, if you if you do speak critically about anything, maybe you are um, cutting off opportunities uh, for jobs and for working with particular people. You know, even though it's like, you know, 2016 and, you know, we don't have the same atmosphere as, uh, you know, that portrayed in Boogie nights or whatever i still think that there's um still this kind of mob i mean like mafia mentality about the industry as a whole and those who work within it that they're outsiders i mean they're obviously outsiders socially uh, acceptance wise and um you know they're they're very much living their life where there's that stigma that runs probably from everything from like as depicted in in boogie nights from getting a bank loan uh to probably if they found out if if someone like your your uh, uh doctor found out that you work in the adult film industry that you would be um, kind of fetishized or shunned. I think there's a cultural um, a cultural difference here that maybe we should discuss because I, I'm not sure I'm not completely sure that you in Britain have the same puritanical through line that we have in the U.S. Even if you're not um, religious, do you guys? Because you guys can see nudity on tv after a certain time right of day yeah if um we have obviously the watershed which controls content that can be obviously shown i think as well obviously here in britain we don't have the sort of strong christian uh moralist sort right. of front um obviously in the states you have the number of, of bible belt states you have yep. that sort of strong christian presence and it obviously has <clears throat> has more of a sort of sway over what what can and can't do. I wouldn't say we're in the same sort of openness of like Europe when it comes to right. pornography and nudity. I think well, there's still a prudishness about it, but right. at the same time, we do obviously have this this openness um, in a way which is really come into conflict uh, as of the last couple of years. We used to have uh, what was known as the Pay Treat Girls. Uh-huh. Right, true. Yeah, yeah. In the paper, you had a topless model mm-hmm. um and this is as i said this is just a national newspaper that that features the sun and there was a big sort of cry big sort of like feminist um debate over whether right. this is exploitation of the girls or whether you know these are girls it's their freedom to obviously do this so as with most feminist topics there's obviously the two separate groups which are pro and right. and uh and against these things man so, i um, used to love page three girl by the way that was my favorite thing. It's uh yeah it's 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 a it's a difficult thing because obviously when you're growing up a growing up as a, a as a teenager and stuff this is your introduction to 
beauty sure. and exploration of uh, the female form and that. And whereas obviously kids now, they just go on the internet. And obviously what you oh, yeah. on the internet is miles differently than what we were exposed to as, as kids, you know. Uh, oh, absolutely. How, how easy is it to even see the most, like, the most extreme stuff, the, the, um, the most extreme kink or the most ex- bestiality? It's easy to see bestiality mm. and you're, you're a kid or whatever. I mean, I remember when that, that watershed moment of, of the Internet really took hold of, of our generation in the late 90s. And there wasn't – I wouldn't compare it to the dark web, but there were – corners of the web sites that you would go to that were kind of scary to go to because i mean you could very easily see faces of death type shit you know people being killed you could easily easily see the most grotesque sexual stuff yeah oh i think that yeah back in the the early days i mean there's obviously we're talking about the mid to late 90s mm-hmm. it was like it was a real sort of wild west sort of situation as you said you could go on and see any number of things. You had things such as like the Anarchist Cookbook. Uh, right. You had things like Rodden.com, which was obviously giving us like the face of the death style stuff. Right. And what we were obviously considering, obviously hardcore at the time, is like obviously nothing compared to some of the things that you see now. Yeah, And it, it was fascinating. I was reading a fascinating piece the other day that these kids now, they're growing up with this false image of what sex is. Um, <laughs> that they see, see these exactly. acts and on through these sites and they assume oh this right. is what what it is um it's a, and it's it's a very interesting scary. thing it's a very interesting thing i i had just read something um not too long ago about uh millennials view of what sexual practices are and you see that more and more um that that sex is viewed in a very uh you know so influenced by pornography um that within its practice can uh can the two members who are engaging in this uh uh um practice are they are they you know uh <laughs> Are they athletic enough to do the things that they see in pornography? Are they, you know, uh, you know, it's it's about uh, um, the not just um, the different um, the different setup that you can do, and and uh, what am I thinking of the um, the different moves that you can do? But I heard I, I was reading a, an article about how millennials view it in in very much. A much different way. It's not connected to love, even you know, because before it was a, it was a, a pornography was a depiction of something. I think that, especially when it started, was a depiction of something that really was taboo. And if you went out of your way to see it, it was usually for for self gratification. And now it's become it, over the years, it's it's become more influencing people's actual sexual practices in the bedroom and now it's influenced how people think of sex when they when they have sex these Mm. you know millennial generations it's interesting how it's changed over the years so yeah that's very interesting to me that it's that it's so um it's so impacted by the type of uh, pornography that's popular, whether it's you know kinky uh, stuff or stuff that you just see on Tumblr that's really matter of fact, you know, it's it, it's wherever you absorb it. Yeah, I mean, obviously, before we end up going down this rabbit hole of pornography discussion, really, and it is obviously it's a topic that we could obviously just spend a whole show discussing just 
how pornography has obviously evolved over the years when you look at things such as Deep Throw and obviously where it's evolved on to now where we've got, I think I saw the other day that I think X Beaver um, is running its own sexuality show, uh, The Sex Factor, which again, and this is being covered in like mainstream press, this is being covered in mm-hmm. like Vice and uh, bullshit newspapers, the fact that this is out there and before this would never be the case, but I would have to just pose like as a final thought. Do you feel that this misconception of uh, sex and pornography obviously being blamed for how how you've uh, obviously interpreting interpreting pornography um, and relating it to their own sex lives? Do you feel that this is a knock-on effect in the fact that sex education has all been pretty much phased out of schools now? It's always interesting to me. Like it's a very pers- specific perspective the American thing because the people that I've grown up around and that are my closest friends, we're in this kind of vacuum of atheism or being agnostic. And I don't have the direct um, influence of religion or even very, you know, very strict upbringing on me anymore as an adult. So my perspective on pornography is that it's an aspect of adulthood, it, sexu- just like sexuality is an aspect of adulthood. Um, men and women should share it and uh, or, or, you know, male-male or female-female. People in a relationship should share it or people by themselves, if they're looking just for masturbation, gratification, they should, they should use it in whatever fashion that they do as long as they're not harming someone. And um, the, the thing is, is that with this perspective, it is not the popular perspective. Like I said, it's, it's part of this vacuum. So it's very strange here to, to talk about something that, that has a social stigma around it. It's not just a, a religious taboo or a you know, strict upbringing uh, type thing. You can't talk about it in the mainstream, and it's the 21st century. You have to be very uh, careful because it could be – like I could probably talk openly about it with someone who's my generation or younger, but I could not talk about it with, say, my, my parents' generation no. or – or I couldn't talk to uh, if it was my generation. I couldn't talk to someone who was who was uh, particularly uh, Catholic or you know very religious, right? And it's it's infected so much of um, the the people in the country. It really depends on what region you're in in the U.S. Um, where you got to be careful with it. Whereas I would love to be so free about it and talk about it openly because I think that uh, human sexuality is something that we should be uh, happy to explore. It should be something that we should be happy to talk about because it's it's our bodies. It's, it's the thing that kind of um, that ingratiates us, that kind of excites us. It's the thing that besides um, maybe your relationships, family, and your career, it's something that truly fulfills people. Uh, I mean, that is a pun and, and not as a pun, but I mean, it is something that's very important. I think that people kind of gloss over it because it's still kind of got this stigma around it. And pornography is, there's really nothing wrong with pornography uh, as in and of itself. It's just yeah. a depiction of something that is real life. But sometimes, you know, it's it's made into a fantasy. But people have, have made it into the boogeyman. It's still It's still, you know... Uh, it's still Satan's text is really what it is. Yeah, I feel that, and again, this is without 
getting too involved in obviously religion because it's not just religious groups but just moral censors on a whole who feel that pornography in some way can be outlawed and banned pornography is one of those things that will never go away it will always Absolutely. exist in some form or another and i feel yep. that the more accepted it becomes the only the safer and more the safer for, especially for those working within the industry of course. um it can only become because the when we accept something we can make it regulated and we can take care of the people who obviously choose to choose to have that profession and i would love for us to be in this period uh you're talking you're talking about drugs too yeah. what you just said about pornography is the same thing the, the, uh, sex work and drugs have a very connected trajectory of how they how they're shunned and how they are uh, not regulated, how those people are not given, um, you know, uh, health and law enforcement protection. It's very interesting. Absolutely. And I feel that I would love for us to eventually be in this, this era. We're like drugs in the infant. It has that recognition. It's, it has the legal enforcement behind it. Um, and the fact that we can, people should have the freedom to, obviously experiment with women working within these industries to decide for themselves if it's for them or not and to come away without the stigma of obviously what they have chosen or not chosen to do within these industries. It shouldn't be the yeah. case that if you've chosen to try to um, or audition to do these things, you should be forever branded as being a slut and you should be shamed sure. um, for these things. It, but Yeah, the, the other element of this is, is that not only is there... Uh, a stigma because of um, because of maybe uh, religious or, or strict upbringing, but also a, a very patriarchal thing, which is a double standard of of males in power, whether it's in government or whether it's in their community, still doing this kind of slut shaming that women cannot be sexually active or uh, sexually explore things that uh, are are exciting to them or interesting to them in the same way that males do because they will be labeled sluts or whores or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously on our first film, which probably come to relief for those who were expecting something a little more cheeky when we mentioned pornography <laughs> and those who were probably eye-rolling at my half-assed attempts at giving an argument about pornography. But we're going to obviously start with SS Girls. Um, again, this is a film which might as well be branded as being porn because it is just packed to the gills with nudity and sex. Yeah. And it's really, as we mentioned at the start, this is Bruno Matai his attempt to basically rip off a Tinto Brass's Silent Kitty, but what he does in turn is actually give us a film which is more fun than the film he's ripping off. For those not familiar with Bruno Matai, he's a director who's essentially over the course of his career made um, a career by basically giving his own sequels or ripping off popular films. So hence he's been the person who was responsible for giving us Jaws 5 Cruel Jaws. Um, he gave us Bruno Matai's Terminator 2 uh, which was a mashup of Aliens and Terminator and even tried to rip off Predator with Robo War. Unsurprisingly he has become this cult figure really within the cult film community uh, with people such as the cinema snob really sort of touting and celebrating his work. Um, I know that Brad off at the cinema snob says that uh, SS Girls is probably one of his favourite movies of all times uh, something I probably don't agree with him on but at the same time I can understand its appeal um, 
the film itself set really during the dying days of World War Two. Hitler is uh, worried that his loyal sort of generals are planning to betray him. So we have this SS officer known as Hans Schillenberg, who decides that he's going to set up a brothel with these trained agents posing as prostitutes, and they they will find out which these officers is loyal to the Fuhrer and which ones are planning to defer to the Allies. Right. As we said, right, this is a unique film, but I'm just going to throw it over to Greg. What was your uh, sort of thoughts on this one? You know, when I... I know that it has a reputation. Like, it has a cult reputation. I mean, I, I think that Nazi exploitation does is in, in general. I mean, uh, was it Il- Ilsa, the She-Wolf of the SS, and kind of everything that were these these rip-offs of it afterwards and made this, like, little uh, sub-exploitation genre. Um, you know, <clears throat> I was explaining to someone recently the uh, factory line model of Italian cinema in the 60s and 70s and 80s and even into the 90s. And it's interesting that they do this kind of... They're such, they're such business-minded uh, uh, filmmakers in the sense of, of ripping off whatever trend is popular. I mean, they did it with the Westerns. They did it with the gangster pictures after uh, Godfather. Um, they have their own like gritty police stuff that's very French Connection. Um, they have zombie movies. They have you know the, the cannibal uh, zombie movies, um, alien stuff rips rip offs. So then, I mean, obviously, I think Elsa is a uh, Canadian production, uh, and and the Italian movies that came after this, and the European movies that did these Nazi exploitation movies. I I, I kind of I never saw this movie, but I knew of its reputation. I knew of SS girls and these exploitation movies that would come in a, a three or four movie pack or DVD pack. And I knew about this movie. Um, what I wasn't expect. Okay. What I was expecting was a lot of nudity. I got a whole bunch of that. Okay. A lot, of, a lot of tits, a lot of bush, a lot of ass. Fine with that. But on the other side of it, I wasn't expecting that much of a story. And it's actually a pretty interesting story. Now, that's the thing. I mean, you say that it's a ripoff of Salon Kitty. And I have no frame of reference for that. I'm sorry. I don't really know uh, Tinto Brass very well. But um, I know his reputation. But I haven't seen many of his yeah. movies. And uh, outside of that, I don't know how much of the plot of this movie is cribbed from that. It probably is. But I thought that the um, the actual plotting of it... Um, until maybe halfway through the movie was actually pretty interesting. I thought, oh, you're just going to have an excuse, which it really does, just have an excuse to have uh, sex scenes and people doing this uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, Caligula type stuff. And uh, kind of like there's that through line of finding out the who 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 these high-ranking Wehrmacht officials, um, what they really think of the Fuhrer, you know, that he's a madman and he's going to get us all killed. And um, I, I, th- I find that that kind of little espionage uh, bent to it is pretty interesting. Um, but yeah, n- just knowing off of its cult is is what I approached. And, and of course, I mean... If you're expecting a movie that's wall-to-wall nudity, it's if you started off there, if that's square one, then you're really just—it's just a fun movie. I feel like you know, it, there's nothing. It doesn't have the heaviness of of the other movie we're going to talk about tonight with with Thriller. Yeah. It's a very—it's a lighter movie in in uh, relation to that. When Bruno Mattei directs these movies, he tends to have this like 
running theme throughout his career where he would direct normally like two or three movies of, a, of the same theme and then he'd move on to the next theme. So obviously we had SS Girls, which is 1977. The same year he also does Women's Camp 119, which mm-hmm. is a lot darker, it's a lot heavier, it's not as fun as this one. Right. When it came to the obviously the Italian cinema, they were really trying to top what was being done by the Americans, and this is why we look at things such as the Jalio genre, the zombie movies, yes, uh, the horror mm. films in particular. They're always a lot heavier in splatter, in gore, um, yeah. in nudity. They're basically trying to top what the Americans were doing, and obviously these films come back to the states and Britain, and we think right the same as when we watched like um, a lot of the early sort of anime of the late 80s such as things such as the other thing we think wow these guys are really nuts Um, and we again we don't have the context for a lot of this because there was no IMDB there was no real the only real film writing at the time was sort of through specialist publications Um, so things like Legend of the Other Thing which was really just designed to be shown in like brothels and sex houses because of the Japanese censorship laws saying you can't show a penis but you can show a tentacle do what you want Um, but we thought that these were just normal sort of animated movies. So we thought, wow, these guys are really sort of screwed up. And looking at this film, um, it would be easy to say again that the Italians are pretty screwed up because we obviously, uh, the film wastes like zero time getting <laughs> into it. Yeah. Um, so th- there's no teasing out of nudity and sex in this movie. You get it pretty much in the first 15 minutes. Oh, yeah. And I love the fact that here he's not actually directing as... Bruno Mattai. He's directing as Jordan B. Matthews. Uh-huh. Yet, when you look at the story credit, it's Bruno Mattai and Jordan B. Matthews. So he gives them some <laughs> <little> credit. <laughs> I didn't notice that. That's awesome. Yeah, this, I mean, this is a Nazi exploitation movie. One of the more controversial sort of subgenres of, of, of genre cinema, really. Yeah. Uh, mainly, obviously, because you mentioned the Nazis. It's, you know, it's not a pleasant subject for anyone to discuss. And these. Nazi exploitation films, where she mentioned like Isla, the, uh, she wrote for the SS, the last Audrey the Gestapo, those sort of right. notorious Nazi exploitation movies. They really were just an excuse just to throw disgusting shit on the screen. It, it's true. It's it's a shorthand. So like you, when you're doing Nazi exploitation stuff, you already you already know that it's going to be a certain level of of taboo. But if you that's a shorthand. If it's if it's Nazi and it, it's in a castle somewhere, and you know about the the concentration camps and them experimenting on people, you know that it can get really fucking dark. Yeah. And I mean these mo- these movies seem to be at least this one especially seemed to be very influenced by Solo and any of those torture movies that uh, became popular, you know, through the through the uh, 70s. Just, you know, the the type of uncensored, gritty, real-life torture shit that they haven't been able to put on uh, on cinema before. Yeah. yeah. And I think, obviously, the fact that it's not exploitation, it, it is, as I said already, it's just an excuse because we obviously know you have that historical context of what the Nazis did. So it's not too much of a leap to sort of throw this um, fantastical stuff on the screen. It sort of like perfectly ties in with this demon image of what Nazism is. Right. Um, but when we obviously open, we've got we've got Hans and he's, he basically picks out his, his crack team of, of hot women who <laughs> to be his, his double agents. And we yeah. go into this, this training montage. And I think... This is before we even have like the '80s training montage, like in Rocky, sure. and that. So, if you set this uh, truly bizarre training montage, like Eye of the Tiger, it'd probably be quite amusing to yep. watch. But yep. 
here we see the girls and most of this is done in the nude and they're they're having sex with all these different people with all these various kinks like we've got the beast man and we've got like the hunchback and we've got the that's that's the interesting part to me is that like in all of this you have kind of like you know they're being trained it made me think of recent my recent example is the Americans on TV and they show how those um, Soviet spies uh, get trained in Russia before they came to the US and kind of they have to go through every type of, of scenario so they can be ready for anything and that means like violence uh, any sort of any sort of sexual scenario and everything and I'm like watching this and they're going through everything. So uh, the prostitutes are getting into like extreme bondage. They have to have sex with like a deformed dude, which I think was kind of like made me raise an eyebrow that this is being lumped in with all this other stuff. Uh, dog fucking. I believe dog fucking was in there. Well, we have the one of our hands, uh, sort of like henchmen who's like a real twisted bastard. And he's like basically yeah. into drinking blood and having sex with dogs and, yeah. He's, he's this really grotesque sort of character and I love the fact that we've got all this these sex scenes which are really quite unsexy so don't expect, <laughs> I don't know whatever it's speak for movie. yourself speak for yourself <laughs> Greg was like this is the greatest movie ever <laughs> um, we've got obviously these scenes of, uh, of sex and perversion that are going on and they're intercutting it with like lawn aerobics and teaching them how to fence, <laughs> fence topless and yeah. there's no like training on like interrogation or like anything that would come in handy. <laughs> so, like these random like athletic exercises, they can obviously do them in nude like fencing and stuff. All the happier. Yeah. And I think one of the last shots is this woman charging at the screen with a machine gun. <laughs> it's it's one of my highlights of the whole film. And I wish that the film had the momentum to carry it through. But right, I like that you say that thing about the lack of. The lack of interrogation, because there's really no subtlety in how they find out who's a traitor. They say, what do you think of the Fuhrer? <laughs> and the general's like, oh, he's a madman. There's, like, no, like, subtlety. There's no, like, you know, needing to, to kind of finagle and try to, like, finesse him into saying something. It's just like... Yeah, now that you uh, now that you had sex with me and you drank, you know, all this uh, cognac, what do you think of oh vodka cognac? By the way, is it's an aphrodisiac? Um, <laughs> you know, uh, what do you think of the Fuhrer? And they, and they they're just ready to tell them, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, they're more than happy to like give it up because they've they've always had sex with this attractive woman. It's sort of like ah, found you. <laughs> and I love the fact that they have the first orgy that they organize that. They round up all these these gem, traitors generals, and Hans dresses as a Nazi pope, as though he's conducting a confession. Yeah, them. like 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 Inquisition. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, first of all, it's it's the idea of a Nazi pope which attracted me to this film in the first place. I think yeah. it was like one of the selling points because it's like I don't know, I've never seen a Nazi pope. That's that's worth a look on his own. We haven't um, even mentioned one of the elements that at least pointed out to me. Uh, what is his, what is his full name? Hans something. Started with a His name is. He's got those awful names, which um, Schillenberg. Schillenberg, played by Gabrielle uh, Carrera. 
We're going to butcher like to... a lot of names here on the show. I know, I, I know. He's basically, okay, for anyone who's wondering, he's basically the Italian Crispin Glover. That's what he looks like. This guy's very, he's very gentle in his face, but he's got, you know, these eyes that you can't trust. He's, he's, a, he's really off the deep end. <coughs> that guy is amazing through this whole movie because, it, you know, if there's, if there's scenery chewing, if there's overacting to be had, Carrara's got it. He, yeah. He's fantastic. I also love that he's our hero. Yeah. <laughs> of the film. The Nazi is the hero of this film. There's no there's no ally showing up in this one. Is that our hero, you know, the guy you're rooting for yep. is a Nazi. Yep. Um He's got that through line too. I mean, he does like, you know, we'll we'll get there. I'm sure we'll expand on this, but he's the one that, you know, really goes through uh um through the ego boost. Yeah. He becomes, you know, he suddenly, I recently watched um, uh, Manhunter, and it made me think of that line, if you do what God does this many times, you become as God is. And that's what I'm thinking. Like, he, he goes through these trials of finding out uh, who Hitler's traitors are to the point that he thinks of himself as the Fuhrer. And I love that part of it. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, and, and I mean, he's a true believer. Yes, mm-hmm. he truly believes in the Fed Reich and, and what Hitler is is basically yeah. preaching, and he sees it as like the ultimate insult for anyone to consider turning against Hitler. So he's more sees nothing in like killing off his his, his fellow uh, Nazis at all. Not, uh, yeah, he's the da- he's the real dangerous one. Yeah, he's a yeah. true believer. Absolutely. And at the same time, he's got like this hench uh, woman with a uh, scarred face on fr- Inga. Like, the, tw- the twisted sex kitten, Inga. <laughs> and uh, she's, for whatever reason, she's obsessed with Hans. She's, yeah. And we ha- it, in the end, we end up working in this really awkward uh, love triangle, which <laughs> why they chose to include a love triangle in this movie, I'm really not too sure. When <laughs> just the, obviously the intrigue and uh, this, what's obviously happening the brothel is interesting enough without obviously adding all these other elements and the fact right. that Hans works best when he doesn't have those sort of connections when he's just basically you know the man with the job to do but yeah these orgy sequences are just absolutely ridiculous they are awesome. we have like the scene where the girls are riding these officers uh, like like the horses and in the middle of it we've got that time life uh, photo of Hitler um, which seems to be like appearing like all of these movies. It's just this one particular picture, and it's just like yes. framed perfectly in the middle. It's so like I, I just wonder who who did the design for this because not only is the swastikas everywhere, and I mean it's not just everywhere. just a normal decoration like in standards and that. We have like the Nazi bedspread, yes, which I only noticed this time around as well. So this is my second time watching it swastikas on absolutely everything yeah you're um, right not just in the standards but like you know uh the the it's like the candle holders everything is a swastika <laughs> but yeah it's still like where does someone fi- where does hans find a, a swastika <laughs> bedspread it's part of the perks man it's part of the perks as soon as you become ss you get a, you get a nazi bedspread you get a nazi toothbrush that's it you're good yeah, it's um, 
You don't want to see his sleeping bag. You know, one of the things, like, I, I love in those scenes because there's, like, little little sketches in those orgy scenes um, of, like, you know, the, they'll pause a moment or they'll cut away to a guy who's, like, taking off his white gloves one finger at a time. And, you know, he's, you know, about to ravish this girl. And then another one who's, like, looking at this naked woman while he strokes the stem of his wine glass that's in his lap. I mean, it's so so obvious and on the nose. But this is like this, these orgies are just they're they're not um, they're 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 gratuitous in a Caligula type way. You know, there's no like penetration that you're gonna see, but everything. But I mean, you're seeing everything. Yeah, it's um, it's an open experience. I love the, also the fact that this is probably the only film where we see Nazi soldiers hearing about the downfall and death of Hitler while having an orgy. <laughs> in English, no less. In <laughs> yes, English, no less. <laughs> over the radio. Yeah, no, I, I love that part. So I was I was thinking also like my one of the the running gags, and it became it came to the point where I would just laugh every time this was on screen. Was whenever they have a champagne bottle or any type of alcohol whatsoever, someone has to pull the cork out with their teeth and spit it in disgust at the floor or at someone else, and it's it's ridiculous. It happens at least six or seven times throughout the movie. I'm just trying to think of which is the most grotesque moment to highlight in this, but when you're watching some newbie young woman have sex with a guy who looks like a sweaty loaf of bread, it's sort of like makes you wonder how low your t- sort of taste go because as we, as we, I think we pointed out and we were obviously talking about that training montage what disgusts one person delights another so yeah well you know that's what I got to understand like there's a there's got to be a stark difference because I mean the last um, episode that we did together we were talking about the devils and Ken Russell and you know there's that documentary t- where where the women that were part of that uh, that that harem or that that the group of nuns rather yeah. in the church that are getting naked and everything and they're talking about how uncomfortable they were because there were some some of them were being fondled by the male extras and everything and I think that it's 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 so weird to stark contrast that in this movie women are naked 99% of the time and they are being just like like you said a sweaty piece of bread you basically have all of these men of different body types just like you know grinding against you or you know holding holding you down or you know on on the floor and everything it's just it's really a, a stark difference between the two types of art um, when it comes to, and you know, you could you compare this to other exploitation classics where there's a lot of nudity, exploitation movies, and everything, and it, it just seems like this this Italian version is a is a little more I don't know balls to the wall if that's an appropriate term for this. You can go with that one. <laughs> I mean, I just realized that. Um, I just realized. Did we talk about the fact that someone has sex with a dog in this film? That's what I mean, yeah. Like at the beginning during that training montage, I mean, it's it's not as grotesque as someone might think no, in, in fiction. But she's like petting the dog very, very uh, roughly and and making orgasmic faces. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, we talked about about Hans. He's essentially our pre-Christmas lover. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. 
I mean, you would think Christian Grover is like a, a uniqueness. <laughs> Maybe this is where he gets his acting style from. Maybe. So, so SS Girls as a, as a young boy and was like, you know, that's the style I need to go. <laughs> It's it is so it's so over the top in kind of like a a Dracula type way, um, and then I mean it obviously as the movie goes on the plotting is thinner and thinner too because I think once they get to the second part of the the, the second act of um, once they've already established that this is what this castle this bordello does what these these undercover um, Nazi prostitutes do. There's a second part where they're trying to lure out a a uh, officer named the Divine Oscar, who is already on the bad side of the Fuhrer for what he did to this town. I think in Poland, he had uh, like killed fifteen thousand innocents and. Uh, de- Decapitated them and did all this crazy, gruesome shit. Um, I don't know how that would get him on the evil side of the Fuhrer, but okay, well, I'll buy it. Um, but why the Divine Oscar needs to go to to the bordello to uh, to to what? I don't, I don't understand this. Like you, you, he's on the wrong side of the Fuhrer. You could just put him, put him up on a firing squad, and that's it. What's the point of having him go to the the, the secret traitor finding bordello? What yeah. what are you trying to weed out of him? I, again, is this is the second half is really where the film starts to fall apart, and yeah, for such a a company man, so to speak, that Hans is, that we see him towards the end where. He starts having these grand ideas of of mm-hmm. where he stands in in the greater scheme of things. Where he comes to the pact where he sees himself as being above Hitler, and this is right. a man who's obviously proclaimed his love for Nazism, uh, for the Führer, and he's like completely dedicated to this mission he's been assigned. Yet by the second half, he's like sees himself like drunk on power that he's yes. like should be the guy who should rule Germany. Right. Um, and it, it kind of came kind of out of left field for myself for the fact that he would suddenly have this change in in sort of vision, really. There wasn't enough. Yeah, I feel like there wasn't enough build. I mean, if if you are watching this movie for some sort of logical uh, uh, narrative and and, and um, realistic payoff, I feel like you're watching it for the wrong reason. But if you're going to be critical of it, I mean, it, it, there's not much. There's not much realistic build or, or character motivation that makes mu- makes much sense in this movie. Um, it just seems to be like paint by numbers. When they're, it's almost like the the filmmakers and Matei were basically like, oh, well, we're done with this nude sequence. Now we need to inject a little plot here to move it to the next thing. And and, and during also getting back to the Divine Oscar plot because I think it's it's basket case. They they make a point of saying that they need to dispose of Oscar and his sidekicks delicately. Um, I believe one of his sidekicks is like an Asian kung fu dude with a, a white headband with a swastika on it, oh, and he carries nunchucks. nunchucks. Yeah. <laughs> so the 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 Jap- the Japanese, I guess he he has to be uh, like the allied power. I mean the uh, Axis powers. So I guess he's got to be Japanese or something. Anyway, this dude, one of his sidekicks, ends up killing him, I think, because of having some sort of hallucination or whatever. 
So the way that they handle Oscar and his sidekicks delicately, two of them, the sidekicks, get mowed down by machine guns in the courtyard very delicately. It's like this the whole plotting around the divine Oscar is just ridiculous to me. I mean, we obviously have all these disgusting and, and perverse acts that happen. I think the most shocking part for myself is when we've got one of the girls who gets pregnant and yeah. uh, you've got Professor Jurgen there uh, played by uh, Luciano Pigozzi um, who's obviously for genre fans he's probably best known for things like uh, Your Hunter of the Future um, and uh, Return of the 38 Gang or Exterminators from the Year 3000 he's really did a lot in sort of genre cinema um, but when he's like doing the examination and it's like you stupid girl you got pregnant now you have to have an abortion and mm-hmm. it just that was like i don't know that was the one real shocking moment for myself and whether the fact that whether it was matai basically looking at this and going okay we've done sex we've done violence we've done nazism right. what else can we do oh let's throw abortion in here right. um i mean do you think that again the way I was sort of it was this that oh this is just another added shock that we can throw in here. Well, you know, I think that that in the grand scheme of all the things that they're you know they're putting on their grocery list, the abortion part of it makes the most sense to me because I mean you're in a or bordello you you let's think of it from their perspective if you're a Nazi spy or you're you know an agent working for them that they trained I mean you got to keep your body in shape so that you can do the work for the Fuhrer for the for the Nazis so if you're gonna get pregnant that obviously throws out all of your possibilities all your opportunities all of the the training that they gave you um they made a big point of saying that they needed to stay in shape though these women by 70s standards are um 70s women meaning that they have a little bit of uh fat on their bones they're you know uh, a lot of them are not uh skinny they're they're voluptuous women and um so this woman gets uh pregnant i would imagine if it, it's kind of like the nazi version of a pimp so if a pimp is already you know a, a, a slave driver. Think of him as, you know, add Nazi to it. So he's a Nazi slave driver. So they're absolutely not going to stand for for anything that's going to fuck up the plan, including getting pregnant. So, like, the abortion thing, I don't think uh, is as as gruesome in on the grocery list of things that includes dog fucking, but uh, it's it makes sense from a historical perspective, I guess. If you're, if you think about, you work in a bordello I'm sure a pimp or a madam would make you get an abortion if you wanted to continue working there, you know. I think if you come come to it, you know, wanting to have a, a, a fun escape, it's a great movie. Yeah. I think if you're looking for something, you know, I, I, I'm interested in it. It's something that you would watch at, on Cinemax at three in the morning because it it would get you know it would give you the appropriate amount of nudity and sex that you would want to see in a movie at that time of day. But 
I don't think that it's it's you know a movie that you would ne- necessarily uh, uh, academically pull apart or 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 um, revisit for anything other than entertainment value. Honestly, I just I really enjoyed it from a perspective of just watching something that that has a, a cult status, and of course, you know, any red blooded uh, uh, American or British man, I'm sure, enjoys a little nudity. There's nothing wrong with that. I think one of my favorite uh, my favorite descriptions of this film, though, this came from a site that I just recently discovered called Lost Highways, and they basically described it as Game of Thrones without so many floppy wieners. <laughs> That's pretty good. Um, so take away from it what you want from that, but yeah, I mean, this is this is really quite disposable. I mean, Bruno Mattai is one of those diversive directors. He's like Yuri Boll um, in the fact yes. that the people who adore his films is well, the most part, most people don't get them. Um, with S Girls, unlike so many of his other films, uh, this is, for myself, like Cruel Jaws. Um, there's something there. There's moments of this I really enjoyed, um, but on a whole, it didn't really work for myself. It, it's kind of something I would put on to show people just to judge their reactions, uh, right. then something I would, I would go on my way to sort of watch in my own sort of time and while it's uh, certainly it certainly has its place on the list with just its sheer randomness uh, let yeah. alone that aforementioned Nazi Pope sequence I think <laughs> that it's just not there's not enough there to really sort of justify it being, it being any sort of higher in my favorite films list but right. at the same time I mean when you look at the other films within the Nazi exploitation genre I think this is certainly one of the more lighter viewings you can have and if you're obviously curious about the genre and want to see at least one film, then this will be an ideal starting yeah. point because from here it only really gets a lot darker. Um, yeah, but it's uh, a good party film. It's I can imagine watching this with like my friends in high school or in college. I I think that it would it would work well, especially if uh, there's some uh, some spirits involved. Yeah, I can see this being a great film to drink to, but I think this is the thing. I think this is my downfall being straight there. Just like see everything sober. I don't yep. get the ex- I don't get the back of That's... the thing. I was drunk. Exactly. But this movie's great if you've had like that. You have exactly that. You have some sort of of nostalgia in in your beer goggles of of a so and so movie that you can remember. I mean, I really liked it, but I was you know I I had a fifth of vodka that night yeah. or whatever. You know, I I don't have that either. You're right. I mean, for viewing if you. Do for whatever reason enjoy uh, SS Girls. Where do you really go from here? I guess you have to if you're going to stay in the in the genre. I guess you would have to make sure that you you see Ilsa because Ilsa the She Wolf of the SS is kind of the one that kicked it all off, and I think that it's the most well known entry in there. I mean, enough to to influence Rob Zombie's little um, uh, like trailer that's in Grindhouse. Um, the um, the what is it called? The, it's oh, with Nick Cage, Fu Manchu, women of the uh, SS. Yes, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, this is really something I think that that runs through that. If you don't want to commit to Elsa, go see Werewolf Women of the SS. That's three minutes out of your life. But um, <clears throat> I think, uh, yeah, I mean, this is this is certainly going down a road of more specific exploitation. You know, you get into subgenre, sub subgenre type exploitation stuff, and I mean, like you get you get deep into to the cult stuff. So that's always interesting to me, like what you can explore from there 
it's really an open book because if this is the movie that's a gateway, then I imagine the only place <laughs> that you can go from here is much darker and much more gritty. Uh, yeah, it only goes a lot darker. I mean, you're going into like the films which abandoned to the video nasties act. So yes. like mm-hmm. it's experimental camp, uh, Gestapo's last orgy, love camp seven. I mean, these aren't films that I, I would personally choose to hunt down. I feel that the sort of films that a very select group of sort of cult and horror sort of yeah. fans sort of watch. Um, right. There's certainly movies I would say you watch more as a young gore hounds than you do as yeah. a more sort of mature sort of film girl. Cause you, well, you know, th- that's, I think that's the through line too for, for me because if I was watching movies like this um, as a teenager or whatever when you're kind of going through your sexual awakening, I mean, the perfect ones to pair with this are kind of the women in prison movies or any movies like in the in the 70s where you were guaranteed. I mean, that was part of the, the, uh, the uh, price of the ticket was that you're going to see some nudity. So, I mean, any of the heavy nudity um, and heavy sexploitation movies that you could see i guess that this would fit in nicely with the with those two also i mean in, in italy i mean the nazi portation movies they were known as being part of the uh il sadi con, con as zeta uh cycle please excuse my awful italian i mean <laughs> from this we're looking at the art house films as you mentioned already yeah. i mean you mentioned Salo or 120 days right. of sodom or things like the night porter from like 1974 and Right. Obviously, Tinto Brass is Salon Kitty. I still would say, don't. Obviously, Tinto Brass is one of these directors, like, you know, the French New Wave that everyone says you have to watch. But, you know what? I would rather watch SS Girls than watch <laughs> Salon <laughs> Kitty again. I haven't seen it, so it's a, it's a little heavier, I'm imagining. It's like so many of these films, which they insist that you watch to be a rounded film goer. Uh-huh. You have to watch as part of your film education. It's important in in what it it brought to cinema. At the same time, it doesn't necessarily make it a great movie just because it's obviously pushing it. The same way that I don't get on with Goddard. Yeah, well, yeah. Goddard is obviously influential in obviously how films were made. I mean, he obviously influenced Scorsese, which again uh, means there's a, a certain breed of film fan that obviously rave about everything Goddard did but for myself he's I never got like the appeal of a band apart or weekend no. uh, or like sympathy for the devil and the problem being as well the fact that these films feature a lot of outdated politics and unless you have the right. historical reference point or someone to explain the context of the material it just tends to go over your head um right. yeah the worst the worst thing for me in that regard was that when I was going to to college I was on the the precipice. I was on that cusp of of really getting into Godard, and and I saw like four or five of his films that I really enjoyed. But then I started noticing that the people that I fucking hated in my uh, in my film major were humongous Godard fans, and I hate when like there's that extra textural thing where there are people that are fans of a filmmaker or of a movement that ruin it for you before you even really get started because you don't like you don't like those people you don't like their personality and and I've I've had that happen to me a couple times in my life where the the fans of something have ruined it for me yeah. before I even really got started with it oh there's there's always this idea that you know to be 
part of to enjoy a certain director. And again, we'll right. just use French New Wave. I'm not trying to kick it to death here or anything like that. But right. there's this certain pretentiousness of of that you have to like look at film in a certain way. And to be honest, with film is film. You interpret it how you want. Sure. Um, sure. There's no set rules or way that you have to look at these films. You don't have to feel the same way that some critic uh, tells you you should and film and appreciate it film how you want so if you want to obviously watch French New Wave and Nazi exploitation movies and or just just watch what you want and in, interpret it how you want and and view things from your viewpoint because that at the end of the day is what makes film discussion interesting when you can provide some other film point that someone else hasn't if you're just they're churning out whatever Pauline Kael said or whatever Ebert said sure, about right, a movie right. you're not bringing anything to the table you're just recycling um, right you're not you're not doing any of your own analysis right um and <coughs> that's obviously again why we why i do again no reason to the show because it's it's interesting to always get different opinions and uh as we're obviously seeing our second off when we move on to thriller uh, a cruel picture that Film, film comes in many different uh, forms and obviously can be interpreted in many different ways. But obviously, before we uh, take a quick break, um, was there anything else that you may have uh, wanted to say about uh, SS Girls? Or are you you're happy you've nope. covered this one? I'm happy with it, man. I, I really enjoyed it. I'm glad that we uh, that we covered it. Um, as I said, we're going to take a quick break now. Uh, when we return, though, we will be looking at our second film of this evening, Thriller, A Coral Picture. In a world where podcasts already seem to address every imaginable subject, one man broke new ground with a seemingly random obsession about exploding helicopters in movies. He was a podcaster on the edge, a maverick broadcaster who played by his own rules. Now, he has a last chance to talk about the strange way helicopters explode in film. Exploding Helicopter, available on iTunes and Podomatic now. Think you know about Chopper Fireballs? Think again. And we're back. Still joining me in the studio as always is Greg. Hey, how are you? In the first half, we obviously looked at Bruno Matai's SS Girls. Uh, we're now going on to our second film of this evening, a thriller, a cool picture, also known as the Color One Eye, um, as well as the extravagant title of Hooker's Revenge and Thriller. Uh, this is a <laughs> Swedish exploitation film from 1973 which falls under the rape revenge genre probably again one of those more tricky sort of genres and one which is very difficult to obviously get into discussion about without feeling kind of sleazy much like the Nazi exploitation genre we covered in the first half of this show um, right. the film itself is directed by Bone on Viborous here directed under the name Alex Fodorinsky and it follows a quiet girl called Madeline who since being sexually assaulted as a child by what I assume was a hobo, judging by the sleaziness of this old man. <laughs> and again, this is in the opening moments of the film, so this film really wastes no time at all. Um, what is coming out of the hobo's mouth? <laughs> I don't. What is that go? What is going on there? I don't. Know. Is he supposed to be rabid or? Yeah, I, I guess it's uh. But this opening attack is a child. <laughs> I mean, he leaves her mute, and. As an adult, she is one day gone into town and she accepts a ride from this man called Tony, uh, here played by Heinz Hoff, who basically takes her to dinner and is under this delusion of being this charming man 
who wants to like wine and diner, instead gets her hooked on heroin <laughs> and pimps her out. And he basically writes to her family and says that, posing as her, and says that she wants nothing to do with her, which in turn causes her father to die. I think both her parents, uh, like, do, do they... Do they die from being depressed? Do they yeah, commit they, suicide? Yeah, become they have forget I think I was mistaken for a minute I'm thinking that her father dies of a heart attack, but they actually both parents do commit suicide. Um, uh, and she's sort of like caught up in this world of prostitution and she earns her trust of her, her pimp Tony to the point where he allows her to <laughs> go out of the house and in between right. seeing clients and again this bit is very much the case in the same sort of sleaziness as SS girls, which makes it kind of the perfect pairing. And <laughs> that the clients that she's having to deal with are again these sleazy men um, that she's having to like deal with, and they're just sweaty and hairy and disgusting. Just, and just the, the the commentary on males in both of these movies is uh, is pretty apparent. It's m- males are are. Are just not good in any slight in any slight way, really. Yeah. Let's be honest. And I mean, Madeline, she's no delicate flowers. I mean, the first time she's right. forced into prostitution, she slashes a, uh-huh. a client's face um, with her nails. In turn, this leads to Tony blinding her in one eye with a scalpel. Um, yeah. A scene which reportedly was done using a real cadaver, to much controversy. Wow. I didn't know that, man. I was like, that's the most gruesome eye violence that I've seen since, uh, what is it? What do you call it over there? Zombie flesh eaters? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah zombie. Yeah, pretty gruesome. Pretty gruesome eye violence. So, yeah, it, um, this obviously leads her to them being referred to as one eye, as if the fact that <laughs> she's not been, has to wear, like, wear an eye patch at all. And, I don't know. And they and 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 the Johns call her pirate. The Johns could, like make make an appointment with the pirate. That's ridiculous. Ah, uh, but I have to say, Christina Lindbergh, Lindbergh really yeah. looks pretty hot with an eye patch. Yes, I agree. And she has a, She doesn't just have one. She has a variety to match her outfits. So she has like exactly. Nice I was going to bring that up. She's like coordinated. Yeah, she's perfect with um, her with her eye patch. She has a red one, a black one, a white one. Yeah. So yep. uh, for anyone who likes her. Uh, there goes a little piratey. Then uh, <laughs> Christina Lindbergh's really the go to go to go to, and I think it's really this this one eye look that she has uh, with her with the shotgun that was obviously used at the end of Death Proof, um, yeah. and it's become this like iconic image for the film. And why I think many people actually hunted it down when they saw that image. It was like, well, what's this movie? Right. Um, at the same time, not realizing quite how sleazy this film is in places, but. Obviously, she's goes on a few months, as we see through the changing dates on the Swedish calendar. <laughs> um, so you can learn your mums in Swedish. Um, <laughs> she starts to earn the trust of Tony, and he's, as we said already, he lets her to go out, and she basically seizes the opportunity to learn all these skills. So we see her learning how to do all this sort of stunt driving. She mm-hmm. learns how to use weapons, um, yeah. and she self-defense and karate yeah she takes self-defense and karate and all the while she's like plotting her revenge against Tony and, and these pimps who are basically sold her into prostitution okay. and it's really the last half hour that that she gets starts to get her revenge and for many they see, many people have obviously talked about this film they see it as a distraction um, and a really a downside to the film but I don't know whether it was 
knowing the knowledge ahead of time that this is a slow burn film that I didn't actually mind it. I, I thought it was, right. the pace in this film was really I quite th- nice. I think that what I knew about it was the Tarantino connection and then the fact that it had hardcore porn uh, inserted into it. Yes. Um, that that was the reputation it had when I came to it. So, yeah, when I saw it, I thought it was pretty slow, pretty overlong the first time I saw it. On this rewatch, I think that I was more on its wavelength, more in tune with it. And um, I should take a moment, just as a quick aside, since I brought up Italian Crispin Glover in the last one, that Tony in this reminds me of like a smarmy Chris Cornell. That's the that's the one that I went with for this one. Tony is, you know, he's he is the type of dude that um that would entice a mute girl that has grown up uh, uh after being raped as a child. He's the type of dude that would get a girl into his car what was it a, a, a 3000 gto um at this drop of a hat because he is so fucking suave and debonair yeah, he's quite and tough. um wines and dines are um but you know this through line this through line of of being raped as a child by a hobo <laughs> and then and then as a as an adult woman you know going through kind of a let's let's say a, a normal but a, a pretty uh, a dull existence as a farm girl, and then going into being being kidnapped, drugged, hooked on heroin, then used to uh, to uh, make money for Tony. She's also, I guess she's she's getting a little money from the tips that the Johns are giving her, so she's saving up money, and then the 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 through line of like her her. Uh, um, like her uh, fellow prostitute saying, you know, she could save up the money and then go to a certain place to get off of heroin. It takes four months and it costs a lot of money, but that's what uh, other prostitutes have done in this situation. And her using that money that she saved up directly to finally, you know, train herself and go on a, a revenge killing spree for basically what men have been doing for, for to her for her whole life it's pretty amazing. It's a pretty amazing plot point. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, I love that. I did, this is film is a completely different film to uh, when we look at things like I Spit on Your Grave, for example. Right. Which is, right. again, a notorious rape revenge film and a film which I was disgusted by, yet at the same time was argue, had its artistic uh, value argued incredibly by uh, BJ Clangio when she was on the show and we paired it up with Pink Flamingos. And uh-huh. she argued the, the validity of it and why it was an important film and uh, and why it's, it deserves the recognition that it, it has when I was pretty much ready to ban it outright. I mean, this is the closest I've come <laughs> to being a moral censor is watching I Spit on Your Grave. Uh-huh. And obviously, it sets up this presence for whenever you enter into watching anything else within the genre that, you know... Is it going to be as bad as I spent on your grave? Um, because obviously, with exploitation cinema, it's always about topping the film which came before you. So it's, yeah. there's, there's obviously this concern when you've got a film which is so heavily based on this girl being sold into prostitution, the fact that it yes. features uh, scenes of graphic sex, 
that there's always going to be this this uh, concern over what you're going to be essentially exposed to. And as I said to you before we we start recording this evening, I'm actually kind of ashamed of how much I enjoyed this film. I I really enjoy it. I really enjoy it too. Um, I think that it's actually I think that it's really got um, it, it, it's it's gritty in the way that that Taxi Driver is, and it has you know some some very hard to watch moments but i think that it overall it tells a very real and depressing story though and that's what's interesting to me to to watch about it someone as well because obviously we mentioned about the use of a cadaver for the ice license sequence right. and if you read mm-hmm. uh, daniel akos book on swedish exploitation films uh, swedish uh, sensationalist films a clandestine history of sexual and kicker cinema um, it's actually revealed in there that the producers took out this huge life insurance policy on Christina Lindbergh because they were not only having her inject saline during the drug scenes, but she was uh, also using real ammunition during the shooting scenes as well. Yeah. Which is absolutely insane, but at the same time, this is kind of to be believed because this, I mean, this is obviously 70, uh, 73. Right. So mm-hmm. health and safety pretty much is non-existent. When you look at like the Filipino genre movies uh, right. that were obviously being put out by like New World Pictures, again, there's no health and safety there at all. Right, right, um, right. Yeah, completely. Yeah, you're completely on your own. Exactly. So uh, th- there's obviously that side of it, and I love when we get into the actual revenge element of the film. The fact that all the deaths happen in slow motion, but oh, it's. It's so Peck and Paul. It's like Peck and Paul to the nth degree. It's like, you know, some of the slow mo goes on way too long. <laughs> oh, you're telling me. I think if we cut out the slow mo at this film, it would be about, <laughs> I don't know, 10 minutes short. At least. At least. I mean, there's, there's one scene, I think it's the one where she shoots one of these pimps in the restaurant. And the death is so slow. I could go out, make a cup of tea, come back, and before you even hit the ground. It's it's when she beats up the police that come to get her in that <laughs> warehouse that I'm like, really? Like, this guy, the, the, the filmmakers are so in love with watching a man flip and have a blood spurt come from his mouth that kind of makes this, you know, this water fountain... You know they love they love that effect so much. We're talking about like a slow motion shot that lasts ninety seconds. It's just just so long. And you, two two cops and she's doing this. She's beating the shit out of both of them. And you, it's just I'm like sitting there like seriously. This this sequence is still going. Yeah. It's still going on. But I mean, this, again, this is a real credit credit to her is the fact that when you see her doing these scenes when she's firing the shotgun when she's there mm-hmm. in beating up the, the two cops in hand-to-hand combat it never feels like faked at all that you know no it doesn't or exaggerated it feels very naturalistic it's like when you watch Uma Thurman in uh, Kill Bill uh-huh. I mean she fights better in that film than she does in uh, John Woo's Paycheck which she obviously did yeah. afterwards and you're watching her do these acts and it there's a real natural sort of style to it <laughs> And it's certainly something that I miss, especially when I watch modern sort of film, modern films now, and they have the action heroine. There's so few actresses, especially those without a background in some form of martial arts um, or action sort of cinema training, that when they they do these sort of scenes, they always look so unnatural. Yeah. 
um, which obviously we don't don't have here. And it's something I would love to see more of. Um, but at the moment, it seems to be like kept to like people like you know your Ronda Ronda Rousey's or I was just about to say it's sort of like these these fighters turned actors that that they bring in. Oh yeah. Um, there's very Gina few. Gina Carano. Yeah, there's very few actresses that can obviously um, sort of give us this sort of sort of realism. Really, I think I'm just trying to think of um, the only other person I can I can think of really that doesn't fall in this category would be, would be Michelle Rodriguez. Uh, sure. When you see her in films like such as like Girl Fight or like the Fast and right. Furious movies, she right. again has managed to manages to do a very sort of naturalistic sort of fighting style. You know, it's yeah, back it's to a, these films. It's partly on the the filmmakers and and the editing of those movies too, because I mean, um, they have a responsibility to shoot action in a particular way. I've been uh, seeing some some low budget. Um, action movies recently and I'm um, I'm surprised how poorly staged the fights are but also like the the set design where they choose to have these fights like often like one one of my major criticisms is that in that particular scene where she's beating up the police is that there's several fight scenes and especially in slow-mo um you know that's knocking down your um your lighting in a lot of those uh scenarios and it's just dark backgrounds it's a dark warehouse background and you know i see these movies recently where they have a, a woman fighting or or some some karate or tai chi being done and it's so poorly lit that you're not really seeing much of the um the athleticism and the yeah. stuff that they've they've rehearsed so it's really on the filmmakers and the editing a lot of the time to make the actor look like they can fight whether they can or not. I mean, in this movie, I feel like there's a couple times when Lindbergh kind of looks like she's doing a really good job. And there's some other times like she lo- looks really out of her element, you know, uh, not very comfortable with a, with the gun or not very comfortable with, you know, whatever, whatever she's doing. But it really is where it's where it's cut around. I think in that particular scene where she's beating up the uh, the police officers or shooting the shotgun at the uh, the pimps uh, 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 sidekicks, I think in that in the, in those sequences she really owns it. I think when you when you have the body in front of her uh, foot when she's kicking that guy's like gun out of his hand that looks really uh adventurous really action driven because she's she's uh shot at a particular angle that makes her look you know strong and intimidating whereas you know if it was shot in in a in a wide shot it might look you know really hokey so yeah yeah i mean the scene which follows um her beating up the police horse because she from that point, she uses, steals her police car, and that's her vehicle of choice. <laughs> which I have to say is like really says a lot about the Swedish police force when they can't track one of their own police cars. <laughs> this is the seventies; they don't have Flojack. They don't. They don't know how to track their police cars. Um, it's like in GTA when you steal a police car. How can you get so far away with it? <laughs> and I have to obviously like question as well the fact that that she that if you're going to steal a car. Why did you go for something not so, as so inconspicuous as a police car? Um, sure. But in turn, I mean, it does obviously it sets up nicely this wonderful car chase sequence. It's probably my favorite film bit of the whole film, where she's chasing yeah. one of these guys down the Swedish uh-huh. highway, and <laughs> she's there posing as a police officer, and he there basically flips off when he recognizes who she is. 
and every vehicle that they come in contact with, they like a mini's run off the road, it explodes into flame. It's yeah. like a car chase See? as shot by Monty Python. Exactly. Yeah. It, there's no there's no prejudice either about who's dying and who's getting blown up in this whole scenario. Like there's a at this point she's a loose cannon. She even like gets to I think uh, a uh, a garbage truck won't move out of her way and she gets out and and shoots at the driver's window with her shotgun. It's like to the point of like stop fucking with me. Stop keeping me from my my mission. She doesn't give a shit. Well, the whole chase sequence, I couldn't actually figure out what's going on, because we obviously have the chase going on, and then it randomly stops. Um, yeah. And, and we suddenly end up at this this uh, this warehouse before we obviously... They ran out of money, is what <laughs> happened. They couldn't finish it. It's kind of like uh, the end of Robo Jocks, where you can tell precisely when the film ran out of budget. <laughs> uh, where we, go into, we have the robots going to space, and then they basically ends with the VAR 2 two lead uh, characters fighting each other with sticks because there is no money left in the budget. <laughs> but. We, we should really talk about the elephant in the room because, I mean, I, I, I was aware of, of art house cinema in the 70s. My, my parents have gone to, you know, Swedish movies. We we know what you're going to see when you go see a, a '70s Swedish movie, um, but uh, I guess I guess this movie kind of gets lumped in with uh, a certain a certain export that was coming out of, of Sweden and the and the uh, Scandinavian countries and you know north in northern Europe. These the when 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 pornography was a little easier to sell. And I think there was an interest in in having that in your movie to to do a little better uh, at the box office. But you know, this movie's exploitation and it's it's kind of different than the art house stuff, I Am Yellow, and the other stuff that was coming yeah. out of uh, of the uh, of the region at the time. But I do have a question for you, like you know, as far as the the heart, we're we're talking about cocks and pussies here. We're talking about like there there is a cum shot in this movie. With this in there, do you think that it helps or hurts this movie? Does it take it out? It t- take you out of it? Is it too distracting? I mean, the hardcore sex scene that we do have, we have uh, including the film. I mean, it comes out of nowhere, which really caught me by surprise. Right. Much like when you uh, suddenly discover that all the sex scenes in Bay's Mora are hardcore, um, <laughs> it's kind of like it's all like it's like, oh, that's an exposed penis. What's that doing there? Right. It's all like it made me wonder if we'd stumbled into a different movie. So, exactly. Um, yeah. In this film, I don't think it hurts. I mean, it doesn't add anything to it. I mean, it's just an added extra isolation that was sort of thrown in there. Um, right. I love the the fact that the the couple that they brought in to perform it they were like a live sex act couple uh that used oh i didn't to like, know that yeah they used to perform in clubs in stockholm and they go by the names of romeo and julia um <laughs> which is julia is obviously the juliet's name in swedish uh-huh uh, that's basically the, the translation that they have so here we have romeo and juliet <laughs> providing the hardcore sex scene <laughs> for thriller <laughs> Um, at this point in the film, we've obviously seen a number of uh, grotesque things. We've obviously had the eye slicing. We've had we've had sex scenes in it. So this is really just sort of a, an added bit of titillation before we get into the real meat of the, yeah. of the film. The, the reason we're here, we're here to see her get a revenge. That's what 
we're here right. for. We're obviously perhaps guess... not here to watch her do it in slow motion, but yeah. <laughs> it's it's like guess... so much of the film. It's just padding, really. Yeah, it serves. It's I understand what what its real life purpose was to to sell the movie. I understand what purpose it serves within the movie. If you want to know um, how fucked up her life gets when she is being used just as a sex object so i guess it adds to that but the first time i saw it i remember being excited for that aspect of uh, of the movie because i think that i hadn't seen very many movies that had incorporated and and to this point, I don't think that there are many movies that that you know we see a lot of cine, cinephiles that incorporate hard hardcore porn into uh, a relatively mainstream product like this. I did was I distracted by it first time I saw it. I would say I was, and I think that this time uh, I I had that expectation of I already knew what was what was coming. Pun intended. But um, again, I feel like the the movie as a whole. I I can understand where the the where you the filmmakers would say, well, this makes sense to see because you want to see how dark her life gets and and you don't want to uh, turn an eye away from what she's really uh, dealing with again pun intended with the turn and eye away <laughs> but um again you know i think that i think that it does i can understand someone watching the movie and, and being really distracted by that because i think there were at least in the states i think synapse films put out two versions right they put out the version without the hardcore sex scenes and the version with it or maybe the version with the hardcore sex scenes had more of the violence in there too i'm not sure um well, yeah because i mean there was Silence films. I mean, they obviously put out put out one version in two thousand and four, uh, the Vengeance right. edition, um, which I'm just trying to obviously. I'm just obviously looking at the the two cuts here. I mean, obviously, the Vengeance edition had all the action uh, that yeah. was cut from the original one, and then we obviously had the the limited edition, which right. was the film in its in in, in entirety really, and it was sort of like. Right. The more uh, follow one because there's various cuts of it. Because I mean, when this film was first released, it was banned by the Swedish Film Board. I mean, it, right. originally they cut it down from 107 minutes to 104. Um, still wasn't accepted. So they cut it down to 86. Again, still banned, which makes me wonder. Because I mean, I've just this was just the standard but, US cut, which was about 82 minutes. So it makes you wonder what exactly was cut. But the version, the version that they banned, was for its violence it wasn't for its sex though right no i mean again this is it's more down to violence again this being europe uh, sex is and yep. sex and nudity are they're not as big a concern violence is more more concern uh, right right the whole release of this film i mean it, it's just coding con- controversy really from when it was first released through to the sign outs release i mean um the director obviously tried to stop Synapse Films from releasing the film. I mean, he claimed that they didn't have the rights to the film. Um, uh. And in the end, they produced the documentation that said, no, we do, because they acquired the rights from the company that that held the rights to the, as one of their properties. Um, right. So I don't know I what it know is about, it, about this film, that, that he didn't want anything to do with it, really. The fact that, I mean, he obviously directs it under a different different name. Uh, which may have been one right. thing to do, but there's no sort of real 
clear-cut reason I can see why he would not want to obviously ride a bit off the coattails. I mean, it's as with certainly the Tarantino influence, and again, this is real noteworthy thing about Tarantino and the fact that he's such a trendsetter, especially when it comes to cult and obscure cinema, as to what right. is getting put out there, what films are being highlighted. Oh, yeah. I mean, you look at things when you look at what he was putting out through Rolling Thunder Pictures, um, yeah. the films he was sort of like highlighting when Kill Bill came out, it saw things such as like The Baby Cut Peril, A Lady Snowblood, the Zakatoi Battle movies. Royale. They were all getting mm-hmm. re-released. Um, the same way that yep. you saw when Reservoir Dogs came out, City on Fire, the Chan Yun Fat movie. Yes. Um, <laughs> mysteriously, that suddenly becomes, has a new re-release. Um, I think it first came out through right. like Made in Hong Kong, um, and then it was the Hong Kong Legends, I think, picked it up after that. So, Well, well with, without a doubt, as far as the Western world is involved, I, I would say that he definitely uh, played a big part in Battle Royale finally getting released on home video, especially here in the U.S., because you could never find it. It was always an import either from the U.K. or from Hong Kong, Taiwan. Yeah. Um, you know, there was no way that uh, that a, a movie about uh, teenagers killing teenagers was going to work. So I think partly Tarantino, partly Hunger Games probably did a good job of of making it more palatable to release here. Oh, certainly. I think Tarantino, for the American market especially, he's seen more films yeah. being released there than that wouldn't get released. Whether he's doing his like Tarantino Presents a little yes. sub-label with things like Hero um, and Iron Monkey especially. I think Iron Monkey was one right. of the first big projects he brought across. Here in the UK, we right. got these films because of the labels that were picking them up. They were picked through special labels. I mean, Tartan, Tartan. Uh, Tartan yeah. they mm-hmm. picked up Battle Royale and they led really what we came to call the Asian Invasion. Um, yeah. Like the early 2000s oh, yeah. where you yeah. had Battle Royale, Audition and Ring three films that they brought across and it mm-hmm. real kick-started this interest um, not only Absolutely. in Asian cinema but um, in Asian horror cinema especially um, whereas I think that I go ahead sorry. I was just about to say whereas in the States you, as you said you needed Tarantino to get Battle Royale um, yeah you have to I mean, it's so weird too because I think I mentioned it too before that that one of the things that were was so sought after was getting a good subtitled cut of that. And we really had to wait until it got released in the UK or whatever to have really good English subtitles because uh, otherwise you, I remember the director's cut of Battle Royale that was released through Taiwan, I think. And the, the subtitles were so broken. Like you really had to infer what, what was being said because there was no way that you know uh, it made sense. It was a, it was not a a, a uh, English as a first language uh, speaker making that translation. Yeah, I think yes. I don't feel that as much as the perhaps the art house crowds would like to to disagree with me. I feel that we would not have the range of films uh, that we have now had it not been for the Tarantino effect. Yeah, I feel that. I we would have certain genres would obviously leak through, like art house films would come through, yeah. um, directors of note, things like Kurosawa, his films would come through. But right. sort of like the cult, especially things like it's, the it, cult Yakuza movies. I mean, Takashi right. Miike, 
for example, yep. uh, would not have sort of filtered through. We wouldn't have like the Korean movies like by films like people like Park Chan mm-hmm. come across um, had there not been the basis that he sort of revitalizes um, and still does. Um, even though he's now on this sort of Western tack, which I really hope he moves away from, right, um, right. we wouldn't have things like Django, the original uh, Frank True. De Niro movie, being re-released because they wouldn't say there's an audience for them. And he's uh, got this ability to, either by referencing these films or just enthusiastically speaking about them, uh, oh, it yeah. seems to have this magic uh, touch to get things uh, released. Um, I wish it would extend Absolutely. to getting Snowpiercer released here in the UK, but unfortunately, it seems everyone has a limit to their powers. So the other the other end of it is is really like Miramax, you know, for for a lot of art house movies, especially um, getting like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon over here, and um, you know, yeah, Ang Lee as a filmmaker for on the whole, and then what they've been doing like with. Grandmaster and with Snowpiercer, I mean, both of them, even though Snowpiercer eventually came out in its original form, uh, Grandmaster did not. Like, uh, as far as the U.S. distribution goes for a lot of these um, Asian movies, a lot of them don't uh, uh, see the light of day in their original cut no. because of, you know, Miramax and, dis- and distribution deciding that, you know, Americans want a more streamlined story or they don't understand the cultural differences or whatever. And I don't think that anyone should be making that decision for the end user, for the end audience viewer to view a movie as it's intended by its filmmaker. I think that you shouldn't be making up your mind for the American audience or the Western audience for how, how to view a movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I do, I do often wonder what gives Weinstein the right to edit someone else's film. If it's a production he's involved in, then I can understand yeah. more his his role as producer to obviously go in and there's certainly his golden golden children like people like Tarantino, uh, Kevin Smith that obviously have right. more freedom to do what they want compared to someone such as like Spike Jones who's notoriously outspoken against Weinstein and what he felt yeah. was interference within his but. Um, yeah, I don't feel that if he's important something that he has the right. He's to just a, he's such a it's such an old old school mentality too it's like a daryl f zanuck or you know uh, uh um who am i thinking of um god the you know like these producers of the of old hollywood that would decide what the american public would um would be able to digest yeah you, you know they're the ones that are creating what the what the social acceptance of something is, and when you get to the point of 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 imports, especially you know art house films, films that are not necessarily fitting into any particular genre, be them action movies from Hong Kong or anything like that, you get into this thing of why are you fucking with this? Why are you cutting this up? And I feel that that's kind of true of a lot of um, foreign movies in general. It's like whenever you go through a third party, when you get through, through through this distribution, whether it's coming from Sweden to uh, the UK and to um, the US, it's always like, what cut are we going to present them? Is there is there particularly violent or sexual con- content? Like, sex is a much bigger thing to rail against here, pun intended again, uh, <laughs> than than it is in the UK. Whereas you guys have 
the right idea, you should be uh, trying to censor uh, gratuitous violence, uh, or at least uh, um, regulating it from younger eyes seeing it. That I that I agree with more than than the sex. But yeah, I, every every import, uh, e- even uh, uh, even European stuff that kind of gets in uh, uh, untouched uh, to the U.S. better than uh, the really uh, over the top gore stuff and horror stuff that comes from uh, Asia. Like I. I just don't get it. I don't get the the um, uh, cherry picking that they do with what gets through untouched and what doesn't. Yeah. I don't get it. I think, yeah, I feel the audience as well nowadays are a lot more sort of switched on to cultural references and uh, and viewpoints of, of of films now, so they should be able to accept it in its truest format and obviously have those references there. It's not like back in back in the, the early days when these films would sort of come across and there was few people who had those reference points in place and you had to sort of re- had to use as your guide so like people like Jonathan Clements or the much underrated Helen McCarthy who did uh, obviously the, mm-hmm. the anime encyclopedia it's still an essential tome to this day um, Kim Newman yeah. again one of my, my own personal mentors um, these people who knew the references what why films were done the way they did and I think obviously with the internet it gives us these this platform to obviously discuss films and, and to understand them better so I feel it's, it's very yep. very old school the fact that when you have Weinstein editing movies to dumb them down should we say for an American audience because yep. they can't accept them in the truest form and I understand the impetus with Grandmaster because um, what the what is the what is the story I always forget the the um the legend but that legend like you know is something that that people who are fans of, of kung fu and and fan, fans of that genre um are quite you know uh averse i'm uh, not averse to they they know it inside and out yeah. and they know it in different types of of media too it, they it's been in literature it's been in comic and manga form so it's been in so many different versions in so many different types of movies too so I guess the impetus is that um, for someone who's a newcomer, uh, especially in, a, in an American market, uh, they're not going to know the density of this uh, of this uh, uh, legend and of the the story and the person, the real life historical figure that it's it's uh, talking about. But that's really not up to the distributor to decide. You know, it's the filmmaker who makes a film and that should stay the way that they intended. It shouldn't be fucked with by a distributor, not even someone that had anything to do with the movie. Like often it's someone who comes in after the fact to to, to can or some other venue to buy it for distri- for distribution. I don't get that. Yeah. But anyway, getting back to Thriller. Let's get back to Thriller. Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, obviously getting back to Thriller, I think, We've, we've covered pretty much all of this. I think the only thing that I didn't really get with this uh, film, as random as it is, everything seems to have a purpose, a justification, a reason that it's happening. When we get to the end, the final showdown, so to speak, yeah. uh, where she's setting up this meeting with with, with uh, Tony. Um, mm-hmm. and she's, with smarmy Chris Cornell. Yeah, yeah. smarmy Chris Cornell. <laughs> and she's shown setting this bomb up in, in, in a... <laughs> and you think, right. oh, there's going to be some uh, that's going to come into into play here, and it never does. 
Instead, we get this no. bizarre, drawn-out torture scene, which I'm not going to right. say what it is, just because it has to be seen to believe, but it's certainly one that uh, Hannibal Rising ripped off. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, it also reminded me a little bit of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Okay. So, I mean, were you happy with the ending? Did it... Because it ends kind of on a... On a eh. Eh. It feels, it, yeah, it feels it feels kind of tacked on. I mean, like at the end of the day, like uh, there's a there's a, a part where Tony is is uh, is so dumbfounded that he's being invited to a duel with her. Yeah, and um, like like you said, the result is is it has to be seen uh, to be believed. But it feels it feels kind of tacked on. It feels kind of anticlimactic, um, especially considering the the uh, the killing spree. That she's been going on with so with such um, uh, juicy violence, such juicy uh, uh, peck and paw uh, squibs being uh, blown off. Yeah, it's it's it feels tacked on. I agree. I mean, I think it also isn't helped by the way the film is shot. Cause, I mean, this is a permanently washed out autumn yeah. version of Sweden we get here. So the fact that it's just basically happening in some farmer's field. Yeah. Feels kind of anticlimactic. There's no real sort of framing to this final showdown. It, it's it's kind of interesting as the movie goes on because like that was something that I I noticed was that we start off the movie when she's uh you know getting raped by that hobo. Um, it seems to be smattered. The movie seems to be smattered with these reds and oranges and yellows of autumn, and you're seeing all these leaves and everything, and um, it's it's a really colorful movie, and then as the movie goes on, it seems like the the, the most colorful parts that that you see are kind of her uh, wardrobe and her eye patch, and eventually it becomes more and more washed out as the movie becomes, I mean, if you want to talk about thematics and get a little, like, pretentious yeah, the, it gets to the point that maybe it's a little pretentious uh, going on towards the end, but, I, you know, uh, it goes from being colorful and maybe the movie uh, as a whole uh, visually becomes more uh, drab as, you know, she becomes kind of dead inside, too, as a killer. Um, and kind of, you know, her, her whole life really is about um, this kind of vengeance that she takes so yeah the movie goes from being very, very colorful to being very drab and that i understand it just seems like uh you know i guess i guess you could make sense that the ending needs to be anticlimactic because where does she go from you know her her spiraling down it's eventually just going to be a uh, a pretty tacked on ending uh exclamation point to her mission anyway so it, it's a, it's a give and take it's whether the movie is going to give the audience the viewer what it wants like a big um a payoff or whether it's going to be something anticlimactic and they they decided to go in the anticlimactic way i guess it might be the swedish way who knows i don't know <laughs> Yeah, I mean, is there anything else that you uh, want to discuss about this one? Because I think we pretty much covered everything, really. There's one more moment that I want to discuss with you, and it seems to be the way that she mixes her heroin like Kool-Aid in water before she injects it. I don't think that this is how heroin is is made for injecting, no? Uh, I can't really Is it usually heated up? I, <laughs> I, I love the fact that he specifies it's like, this is good heroin. This isn't that street level <laughs> shit. So it's, ah, oh, it's, uh, 
Yeah, and the fact that heroin comes in sugar packets. Yes. It's like, you know, dip it into your into your water or as you said, your saline solution and you just mix it up, give it a, give it a real swirl with your with your spoon and then suck it up to, into your syringe and you're good to go. I thought that was very very odd. And I mean, at this point we are talking about someone who seems to be on a on a understanding with Tony Sorry, with with Smarmy Chris Cornell, um, that she can come and go as she pleases from this, uh, you know, kind of bordello uh, dungeon that he's been keeping her in, um, and and really her only tie back to this is that she has to come back for her heroin. Yeah, like like either she she's going to die in a couple of days probably from the withdrawal of how good this heroin is, or she has to come back and get her get her hits from Tony. Yeah, it's it's this uh, like chemical leash that he has on her. Right. Um, the fact that she constantly has to get get um, get her fix, so to speak. But I love the fact that she gets off heroin by basically punching herself in the arm. <laughs> this is apparently the cure for heroin addiction: is just to constantly punch yourself in the arm. And uh... <laughs> the millions of people who have died. If all they knew, that's the way you get off heroin. Just, just keep punching yourself in the arm. And I love the fact that it's... Because it's... Uh, basically, she gets stopped by the, her karate instructor. Uh, yeah. And then basically, she, that's all she needs. That's all she needs to get off drugs. Yep. That's the little yep. intervention. So, uh, But, uh, yeah, as I said, this is a film I, I shamefully enjoyed more than I probably should. It's, it's daft in places. Um, it features yep. unnecessarily extended use of slow motion footage yet there is something about this film that sort of sends it above its look this iconic character of one eye that we have here um that is more than just another rape revenge film um whether it's the fact that it's this washed out version of sweden we're getting rather than the backwards of uh of the southern states right um there's just something something unique about this film, and it's it it deserves its place as a as a cult a cult film worth looking at. Um, even perhaps some prior warning as to what to expect uh, helps. I don't mm-hmm. I don't really know, but uh, yeah, I enjoyed this one certainly more than SS Girls. Um, and yes, I, I agree. I would recommend it. Absolutely, I think that it's uh it's quite a good. Uh, if you're if you're in the mood for it, I think you need to be on the wavelength. I mean, first of all, slow burn, sure, it's a slow burn movie, but I think that you of getting um, uh, kind of dark with it. If you're on that wavelength of of a taxi driver, or you know, or any of uh, Paul Schrader's type movies, then I think that you'll you'll probably be on the wavelength of this because it 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 is a dark movie from the get, you know, from the get go. The the other thing, you know. That seems to happen maybe two or three times in the movie, and you even see it with the father, the way that the father looks at um, at her. There's this thing with the male gaze in here, because you see the same look on the father's face that you do on the raping hobo at the beginning of the movie. And I'm like, maybe this is the world, you know, maybe this is the universe that that thriller is creating that every male around her only sees her, even her own father. Or was it or was it a uh, was it her biological parents? Were those I farmers said, her biological parents? I think so. I listen. Um, I was, uh, good question. 
But um, we need to go back and and uh, check. But yeah, as far as <laughs> but I'm aware, the, the way that this, parents. huh? As far as I'm aware, they're biological parents. Yeah, I mean they look quite old to be a, a parents, but yeah, <laughs> that's that's true. That that part of it's true too. <clears throat> but I feel like th- this movie does have something to say about the male gaze and and basically men as predators, even her own father. Because I get that that feeling that why would you insert that into this movie without it having a point so maybe males as a whole in this movie in this universe and uh, maybe that's the commentary that it's that it's going for but yeah no i think it's a it's a great movie and i think that if you're on that on the wavelength of watching something truly gritty and um and and uh, a, a great revenge movie i think that it really does have a lot of influence on the revenge movies that especially that uh, tarantino put out it's definitely worth checking out absolutely um, and the video on that note uh, brings us to the end of another episode of the Mad Bad Darren Strange Showcase. Um, I'd like to thank Greg, obviously, for joining me this evening and discussing these films. It's been thank a, you very much, sir. It's been an absolute pleasure <coughs> as always having you on. I love being here. Obviously, uh, in your own uh, side of the blogosphere, the podcast sphere, what have you uh, obviously got coming up? Well, um... Debatable will be uh, coming back. Well, we we we've put out a, a episode maybe every few weeks, but I am going to come back uh, strong. I have a few in the bank, including one that uh, that Elwood Jones did himself, and um, we have uh, we got a couple on the horizon. I think a couple series that we're thinking uh, about doing it, and it's completely based on if I can schedule some of the guests. So yeah. we got some some good ones coming back, and of course, the my real focus over the next couple weeks is going to be uh doing the wire pa- podcast uh, all the pieces matter getting that back up and running with fernando now that things have kind of you know gotten a little more solid uh on my end as far as the personal life and all that but yeah both uh debatable and and uh all the pieces matter are going to be coming back strong um well, again, thank you, Greg, for coming on, and uh, thank you, everyone, for listening, as always. If you obviously want to be involved from the show, please do. Uh, you can leave us some nice comments on uh, iTunes. We're also on Podomatic as well. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. Uh, you can find it under my blog page, which is from the Debt DVD Hell, uh, blog being from debtsdvdhell.blogspot.co.uk. Also on Twitter, which is at Elwood underscore Jones as well. So uh, if you have any comments on tonight's films or something you'd like to see us cover, please do let us know. Until next time, though, this is Elwood Jones signing off for another edition of the Mad Bad Darren Strange Showcase. Remind you, as always, to keep it strange.